And next week we'll have a, a time of announcements and probably a bulletin to remind us of a couple of things that we've already announced that we have coming out that we have coming up, and then we'll have some new things to add as well that we're looking forward to this, I guess, second quarter of the year that's coming up as we continue to reach out to try to minister to those who are coming and ask the Lord that he would help us reach more that are not. So stay tuned for that, and I hope you'll be able to be here next week. But included in that is we'll announce a new sermon series going verse by verse through another book of the Bible that's to begin in April. But in the meantime, we've kind of been going and taking a few weeks just to go wherever the Lord leads. And this morning, we're going to look at the book of Job, and the title of the message is Yet Will I Trust Him. And I pray the Lord will help me to deliver this simple message this morning with the heart of the thought being that despite the trials we go through in life, we should not question God, but we can trust God because God has a purpose through all of it. Job chapter 13 and verse number 15. Job makes a proclamation here, which is where we pull the title of the message from, when after going through his unspeakable trials, he proclaims, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. Hear diligently my speech and my declaration with your ears. Behold now, I have ordered my cause, I know that I shall be justified. Let's have a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray you'd help me as I preach this morning. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts, that we could keep the thoughts simple, tied to your word, and that we could find some encouragement wherever we need it here this morning, some correction, some instruction, some rebuke, whatever we need from the word of God. I pray that our hearts would receive it, and I pray that you'd help me now as we preach. We ask God in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've lived long at all, you will surely know that trials and suffering are a part of life. We live this morning in a world of sin, and thereby as a result, we live in a world that is marred by sin. And sin brings consequences. When Adam and Eve both chose to disobey God, sin entered into the world by one man and death by that sin passed upon all men. When God created the Garden of Eden, there was no pain, there was no murder, there was no disease, and there was no death, but sin has brought into the world all of those consequences, hence the need for Christ to die on the cross to be our Savior, to restore us to what He first intended, and hence the entire message of Christianity. So then sometimes perhaps part of what we suffer is just a result of living in a world where there is suffering. Well, why did my parent die when they reached a certain age? Maybe it was just that time. Maybe it was just the natural course. And suffering will happen as a natural part of life. But as Christians, surely we must we must look at trials and suffering differently than the world does. Surely we must look for more meaning and understand that the Bible tells us that often there are trials and sufferings that enter into our life that is not random or meaningless, but that God, who is providential overall, knows what is coming, when it is coming, and what the purpose is that He would like to see accomplished through our suffering. We'll begin here with a little bit of a lengthy paragraph here from Spurgeon preaching from the book of James on the point of trials where he points out that sometimes we are tried for our faith. In other reasons, in other words, we come into trials and suffering that comes because we are a Christian. God knows it's coming. He allows it, but he has an eternal purpose he wants to see accomplished through our suffering. 
He says, first, let us think a little upon the essential point, which is assailed by temptation or trial. It is your faith which is tried. It is supposed that you have that faith. You are not the people of God. You are not truly brethren unless you are believers. It is this faith of yours, which is peculiarly, peculiarly obnoxious to Satan. Lord, if you will help me get the words out there, not coming. Bear with me, if you will, please, this morning. And to the world which lieth in the wicked one. If you had no faith, they would not be enemies of yours. But faith is the mark of the chosen of God. And therefore his foes become the foes of all the faithful, spitting their venom specially upon their faith. God himself hath put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed, and that enmity must show itself. The serpent bites at the heel of the true seed. Hence, the mockings, persecutions, temptations, and trials are sure to besought the pathway of faith. The hand of faith is against all evil, and all evil is against faith. Faith is that blessed grace which is most pleasing to God, and hence it is most displeasing to the devil. By faith, God is greatly glorified, and hence by faith, Satan is greatly annoyed. He rages at faith because he sees therein his own defeat and the victory of grace. And when we conclude this statement and then move into our text, remember the story of Job and compare it against this quote that sometimes trials come because Satan himself rages at the children of God in the same way he does against God himself. Because the trial of your faith brings honor to the Lord. Therefore, the Lord himself is sure to try it, that out of its trial, praise may come to his grace, by which faith is sustained. Our chief end is to glorify God. And if our trials enable us more fully to answer the end of our being, it is well that they should happen unto us. So early in our discourse, we see reason to count it all joy when we fall into manifold trials. If you've been in church or studied the Bible much at all, you surely are familiar with the story of Job. That the story begins in heaven with the curtain pulled back. And the word of God tells us that one day God was on his throne and the angels of heaven came to present themselves before the Lord. And the devil himself walks into heaven in the midst of the angels. And God says to the devil, hast thou considered my servant Job? In the discourse of God and Satan himself, God was so pleased with the life of this good and righteous man, Job, that he brought up his example to the devil himself to say, look at this shining example of one of my children that belongs to me living out his faith. And I've joked before, I wonder if Job ever got to heaven and then looked at God and said, did you have to bring my name up? Could you have said, hast thou considered my servant somebody else? But then the accuser of the brethren, the devil, began to say, Job doesn't really love you. He doesn't fear you for nothing. Job loves you because you've blessed him. You've increased him. Look at all that you've given unto Job. That's why he loves you. But if you were to take away his substance, if you were to take away his riches, then Job would curse you. He would not live for you. And the devil is a liar. The devil is an accuser. And he spreads those lies even in our world today where people will say there are no true servants of God. All the preachers are in it for the money. All Christians are hypocrites. 
And while surely we are all sinners and there are many bad examples, praise the Lord, as as I have seen in my own life, be a good influence to me, and I'm sure you could give testimony as well. There are many faithful people who do not serve the Lord for naught, but they serve Him because they love Him. And there are people who preach the gospel not for the money, not as a wolf in sheep's clothing, but they do it to care for the flock because they love the Lord. And all throughout history, there have been humble people who have lived out their Christianity because they love God, not for the reward that it brings. But God then gives the devil permission to attack Job and that hedge of protection that was surrounding Job and all he had, God allowed it to be pulled back. And every single time that God gave the devil permission to attack, he came and attacked to the fullest. He's a destroyer. He hates God. He hates God's children. And as Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, I prayed for thee that your faith fail not, but the devil has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. And Peter himself later wrote to the first century church and said, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And in the book of Job, God looked and said to the devil, from whence comest thou, Satan? And he said, from walking to and fro in the earth, from going up and down, walking around in it. And though we are not defenseless against his attacks, he is in the earth. He is seeking to destroy. And a life that runs from God, runs from the protection of God, and even children of God can end up having their lives sifted and destroyed because of the attacks of Satan if we are not careful. Job then in one terrible day begins to receive news that people have come and attacked and he lost all of his livestock. He lost his source of income. He lost his land. And worst of all, he lost his children. Every single one of them fell victim to the evil that the devil would bring. And they were gone. Job then has his body attacked by the devil. And worse than anything, or not worse than all of it, but almost in my mind what makes it the hardest of anything to keep a good attitude is his body is attacked with horrible sores and boils from his head all the way down to his toes. And he sits there by a fire scraping off the nastiness of those wounds and the disease that had struck his body. And in the midst of his wife telling him, why do you still retain your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? Job is able to see the big picture and he says to his wife, rather than correcting her or being angry at her, he says, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked came I into the world and naked will I leave the world. I brought nothing with me. I'll take nothing with me. So whatever God gives me, I praise him for. And if God chooses to take it away, then God can choose to take it away. Then Job is surrounded by his friends those who come to comfort him in his time of need. And they say, Job, we thought a whole lot about it, and we see your suffering is so severe that there's no other logical conclusion as to why you're suffering them other than that your sin is bad enough that God decided to punish you in ways He has not punished us because your sin must be worse than our sin. It doesn't make sense that God would allow these trials to come unless you have sin in your life. We'll say a little bit later, but we know that that was not true. We know that God showed up in the end of the book of Job and said, your friends have spoken that which is not right concerning you. 
and God had to come and correct them and set the record straight. And this whole story of Job has stood as a hopeful note to saints all throughout every age to say, here's my suffering. Maybe it's not like the Pharisees said, well, if you're born blind, it must have been because of your sin or your parents' sin, they said. But no, Christians can look to this story and cling to the hope that perhaps my trials are not just because God is angry at me, but maybe God has an eternal purpose He's trying to accomplish that He has allowed me to enter into the trying of my faith. Job says two things in Job chapter 13. One of them is really good. The other one was perhaps not so good. In Job 13, 15, he looks and he says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And Job was able to say, I know and understand the character of God so much that if God himself wants to kill me, I will still trust him. I will still trust that God is good. Then he said in verse number 18, behold, now I have ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. If you continue to study out the book of Job and let the story go on, how the beginning of the book is a little bit of narrative and the ending of the book is a little bit more of narrative to conclude the story. But in the middle, there's a whole lot of Job going back and forth with his friends. And his friends will say, you must have sinned and that's why God has punished you. And Job will say, I have walked with integrity. There's nothing that I have done that has brought this upon me. But one thing that becomes evident throughout the narrative is that perhaps Job was a little bit too focused on saying the phrase, I shall be justified, instead of saying, God will be justified. We'll play it out a little bit more and come to the story and see that God himself agreed that Job was too focused on justifying himself. But always remember this, Christian, that as a child of God, whether you feel you are being persecuted, whether you feel you are innocent, whatever you believe, your reputation, your righteousness, yourself being justified is never the main goal. It is always pointing back to the righteousness of God. And that God is justified in his doings. That should be the focus. Now, Job had three friends who spoke things that God said were not true. And in the end of the book, he showed up and corrected them by name and asked Job to go and pray for his friends. And Job prayed for them and forgave them. But right around chapter 32 of the book of Job, we find another friend that Job had whose name was Elihu. And apparently Elihu had come with these three friends who were much older than he, and being a younger man, he decided to wait and to hold his tongue. There's a lot of wisdom in that. The Bible itself says that. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his tongue. If you don't know what to say, then it's a good idea sometimes to just not say anything. But he gave deference to the older men and respected the older generation and said, I'm not going to say anything at all till I wait and hear what they say. But as he sat by and as he heard the ongoing arguments between Job's three older friends and between Job himself, it went round and round and round, something like them saying, you've sinned, you've got a problem in your life, that's why God is punishing you. And then Job saying, no, I don't. I will justify myself. I have walked in my own integrity. God has taken away justice from me. I wish that I could stand before God and plead my cause. 
and something happened in the heart of Elihu, he realized that Job was more focused on seeking to justify himself than he was proclaiming the message, whatever God does or whatever God allows to happen, God is justified in that because God is always righteous and he always does right. In Job 32, in verse number 2, it tells us that the wrath of Elihu was kindled against Job. Why? Because he, speaking of Job, justified himself rather than God. And though some of the things Elihu says seems to be a little bit rough on Job, and perhaps he was a little bit too harsh, it's interesting to note that in the end of Job, God never corrects Elihu. God never corrects a word that he said. Rather, he names the other three friends and corrects them for their false message and accusations that they brought against Job. And God himself gives some corrections to Job that mirrors what Elihu had said. So most of the verses we're going to look at this morning is Elihu correcting Job. And the main reason he was correcting Job is what this verse says. He was angry at Job because Job sought to justify himself rather than God. Let's read a little bit here from this text. Elihu says to Job, If thou canst answer me, set thy words in order before me. Stand up. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing. I have heard the voice of thy words saying... Okay, this is what he's saying. I've heard you, Job, say these things. He's quoting what Job has said. I am clean without transgression. I am innocent. Neither is there iniquity in me. Behold, he findeth occasions against me. He counteth me for his enemy. He putteth my feet in the stocks. He marketh all my paths. Then he says, Job, behold, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. In other words, Job, you spent a lot of time pointing to your own righteousness and your own integrity, but there is a God in heaven that is greater than you, that is greater than anyone. And as I've said this morning, never be primarily concerned with justifying yourself and with what Job did. Remember that none of us are sinless. We all have faults that are within us and let us seek to flee pride. And in the matter of trials and in the matter of questioning why God has allowed things that he's allowed to come into my life, I must remember that I am a sinner and God is not. And my primary concern should be worrying about God being defended and vindicated, not myself. James tells us the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. In other words, if you want to see the righteousness of God accomplished, it's not going to be through your flesh. It's not going to be through your anger and your wrath and telling people where they were wrong and why they were wrong and in defending yourself and in getting vengeance. No, the Bible says give place to God and allow God to handle that. I believe that far more often than not, we will be better off if we will simply trust God to take care of our critics, of those who criticize us, of those who have negative things to say about us. We may believe we're right. We may know why we're right. And we may have a hundred things in our head to tell them why they're wrong and we are right. And there's a time and a place to defend yourself against false accusations. There's a time and a place to correct someone who is wrong. But I just happen to believe most of the time we're better off by letting God take care of it 
being faithful and being concerned every day that the name of God is defended rather than that my name is being defended. In the gospel records, as Jesus was about to go to the cross in love and great sacrifice to pay for the sins of all mankind, we see the story of a woman named Mary who went and spent all of her savings, probably her life savings, on a very precious box of what the text calls an alabaster box of ointment. It was a perfume that came from another country. And she took it and she went and she anointed the feet of Jesus with this precious perfume. And Judas, who did not know the Lord, said, look at how much money she wasted on that extravagant, expensive gift. It would have been better off if we had sold it and given it to the poor. But Judas didn't care about the poor. He was robbing the money back. That's why he brought it up. But the text indicates that the other disciples heard what Judas was saying and agreed with it because it sounded really spiritual. And there can be things that people say that sound really spiritual, but that God does not agree with. And they criticized her. They looked down on her. But what we find from the text is not that she spoke up and said, this is anointing Christ. This was done from a heart of love. You have no right to criticize me. Rather, the text indicates she was silent. She didn't have a word to say. But the voice of Christ turned to those who were criticizing her acts of love, her life, what she was doing for Christ. And he said, let her alone. This was done to anoint me for my burial. I'm heading to my death. You will always have the poor among you to care for. But she did this out of a heart of extravagant love for me to anoint me for my death, my burial, my resurrection and salvation that I will purchase for all of mankind. Throughout the pages of those chapters in the middle of the book of Job, you'll find him articulating, I haven't sinned enough to deserve this. You're wrong. Your arguments are wrong. And what he was saying was actually right, because God himself showed up and corrected those friends. Yet Elihu was also right in his criticism of Job, by saying, remember that God is greater than man and you should not be complaining about what God has allowed you to go through. Because while God himself showed up and corrected Job's friends, God also showed up and corrected Job. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. God would come to vindicate Job. He did. God was fully capable of vindicating and defending Job from false accusations and he didn't need Job's help to do it. And I just believe that most of the time we will be much better off whenever there are voices in our life that are like Job's friends if we just keep serving the Lord and let God come correct them when he's ready to do so. He says, God is greater than man. Then Elihu says, why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. What is he saying? He's saying, Job, God doesn't have to come explain himself to you. One day you are going to have to explain yourself to God. And in like manner, whatever God does, whatever God allows in my life, God does not owe me explanation. He does not have to come and apologize to me and explain why what he does is best and why what he does is right. He giveth not account of any of his matters. I wonder how many things God knows that I don't know. Obviously, the list is infinite. But yet, to zoom in much 
closer than that statement to say, I wonder how many things God knows that I don't know. I wonder how many things about my life, my circumstances, my situation that God knows that I don't know. How many bad things He kept me from. How many good things He gave me, but in ways that I was not expecting. And what purpose the trials of life will one day ultimately accomplish in heaven. The truth is we don't know. But God does. Perhaps some of the greatest blessings, as it has been said, is times when God chose not to answer our prayers. We can be so focused on what we want and think that that is the best thing in the world that I wish I could have. But God says, no, I withhold it from you. And we don't know why, but God knows why. God answers every single prayer we ever pray. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's not yet. But the answer to all three of those is God is good. God is right. God is wise. God never sins. I'm a sinner, but God is not. God knows what I don't. I didn't make God. God made me. The scripture, the scripture uses the illustration that God is the pottery maker and we are the clay, the clay that he molds in his hand to make. And at one point the scripture says, shall the clay say to the potter, why hast thou made me thus? How ridiculous. But yet if we would complain to God about the way he made us, about some of our unchangeable physical characteristics, our skin color, the way we look, the family that we were born into. How ridiculous would it be to look to God and question Him and, and, and by proxy question His character by saying, why did you make me this way? Why have you allowed me to go through this? My daughter Sarissa at three years old is at that age where she likes to say why. And not just why to get an answer, but vigorously, sometimes angrily, endlessly. Why? Well, we can't go outside. Why? Because it's raining. Why? Because there's too much water in the clouds. Why? Because God made it that way. Why? I don't know why. <laughs> but just like her lack of understanding, why mommy or daddy say, no, you can't go there. You can't do that. She has no way with a three-year-old brain to fully comprehend what we are able to comprehend and why what we are telling her is for her own good when it doesn't seem like it's for her own good. Why can't I have ice cream for breakfast? It's bad for you. She can't understand why. In that same way, God, as our Father, has infinitely much more of an understanding comparing us to a three-year-old. Our understanding to God, it's not even close. The book of Isaiah, God says, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher. My thoughts are higher. In other words, he's saying, you can trust me even if you can't understand it. There is faith. There is faith. We don't know why, but we trust the God who allowed it. So we say God is good. We say this is good. We say he has a reason for why he has accomplished this. Albert Barnes, in this matter of trusting God, even though we can't see or don't know the why, he says all that we can do then is to submit to His sovereign will and to believe that though we cannot see the reasons why He has done it, yet that does not prove that there are no reasons or that we may never be permitted to understand them. We are required to submit to His will, not to our own reason, to acquiesce because He does it, not because we see it, 
to be right. You see what, what I'm saying in the message from the book of Job is we don't look and say, well, I understand why it's right, therefore it's right. No, we say, I understand God did it. And God is always right. Therefore, whatever God does is good. Whatever God does is right. If we always understood the reasons why He afflicts us, our resignation would not be to the will of God, but to our own knowledge of what is right. And God, therefore, often passes before us in clouds and thick darkness to see whether we have sufficient confidence in Him to believe that He does right even when we cannot see or understand the reason of His doings. So a child reposes the highest confidence in a parent when he believes that the parent will do right, though he cannot understand why he does it, and the parent does not choose to let him know. May not a father see reasons for what he does which a child could not understand, or which it might be proper for him to withhold from him. In Job 33, Elihu continues, Why dost thou strive against God? For he giveth not account any of his matters. For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in the vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, in slumberings upon the bed, when he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction. He goes on to say God allows trials to come into our life. He allows sickness. He allows messengers. He allows trials. In order, why? that he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. I would like to believe that if I never went through a single trial or a single speed bump in my life, I would never get proud and I would be perfectly humble and I'd be the best Christian there is. But God knows my wicked heart. He knows all of our hearts and He knows that as He allows us to go through trials, it withdraws us from our own purpose and allows our hearts and our wills to be aligned with God's will. And He takes away the pride from our heart. Job 35, Elihu spake moreover and said, Thinkest thou this to be right? That thou saidest my righteousness is more than God's? In looking at cross-references, I don't think that Job said that quote exactly, but Job did say a whole lot about, I am righteous, I am guiltless, God has hidden justice from me. And Elihu's saying it's not right for you to exalt your own righteousness above that of God's in this matter. Several verses, let's plow through really quickly here. I'm just going to read straight through and then we'll go through some application. Job 36, 22. He says, Behold, God exalteth by His power. Who teacheth like Him? Who hath enjoined Him His way? Or who can say, Thou hast wrought iniquity? No one can accuse God of sin, for God is sinless. Remember that thou magnify His work, which men behold. What he's saying is, Remember, Job, it is your job and responsibility to magnify and exalt the works of God, not your own works. And that's what he calls all of us to do. Every man may see it. Man may behold it afar off. Behold, God is great, and we know Him not, neither can the number of His years be searched out. Then one more passage here in Job 37, the whole thing is He's exalting the greatness of God and reminding Job that if God is this great, then we should not have to question what God does or what He allows. God thundereth, thundereth, thundereth marvelously with His voice. Great things doeth He which we cannot comprehend. For He saith to the snow, Be thou on the earth. Likewise to the small rain and to the great rain of his strength, he sealeth up the hand of every man, that all men may know his work. Then 
The beasts go into the dens and remain in their places. Out of the south cometh the whirlwind, and cold out of the north. By the breath of God frost is given, and the breath of the waters is straightened. Also by watering he wearieth the thick cloud, he scattereth his bright cloud, and it is turned round about by his counsels, that they may do whatsoever he commandeth them upon the face of the world and the earth. Then continuing in verse 13, For he causeth it to come, whether for correction, or for his land, or for mercy. Hearken unto this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Dost thou know when God disposed them and caused the light of his cloud to shine? Dost thou know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge? How thy garments are warm when he quieteth the earth by the south wind? Hast thou with him spread out the sky which is strong and as a molten looking glass? Teach us what we shall say unto him, for we cannot order our speech by reason of darkness." Shall it be told him that I speak? If a man speak, surely he shall be swallowed up. And now men see not the bright light which is in the clouds, but the wind passeth and cleanseth them. Fair weather cometh out of the north. With God is terrible majesty. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Men therefore do fear him. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. In other words, Job stopped for a minute and consider the power, majesty, and might of God Almighty. And then remember that God has every right to do as he wills. In the gospel, we find the parable of the vineyard owner. And he went early in the morning and said, Who will come and work for me for this amount of money? And then he went back in the middle of the day after he found laborers who agreed to work for that wage. And he said, who now will come and work for me for this exact same wage that I promised the others? Then at the very ending of the day, when daylight was almost gone, he gave one last call. Who will come work in my vineyard? Who will help bring the harvest? And I'll pay you this wage. And he paid the exact same wage to those who worked all day as he did to those who worked half of the day to those who barely worked at the end of the day. And in our human justice, we say, that's not fair. That's not right. If it was my workplace, they'd say, file a grievance. That's not fair. You can't pay me the same amount as him if we both work the same. But God then turned around and used that story to say, I am the vineyard owner. You are the vineyard workers. And some of you, I call to go through this much. And some of you, this much. And some of you, not that much at all. But I'm good to all of you. And the vineyard owner turned to those who were complaining and he said, didn't you agree with me to work for that age, for that wage? It sounded like a good deal when I offered it to you. You're only mad because you're comparing what you got to what someone else did. Because I'm good to them, that doesn't make me evil unto you. And he uses the phrase throughout that parable, whatsoever is right, that I will give you. Whatsoever is right, that I will give you. And the phrase at the end to defend himself, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own it belongs to me so then i can do what i want with it the point of the parable was an answer to peter who said lord we're not like that rich young ruler we have forsaken all and followed thee what shall we have therefore and christ was saying to peter and to all of his disciples don't compare yourself to other followers of christ trust me that whatever i give you is right 
If you feel like you had to labor all day to get the same of what somebody else had who didn't labor much at all, just trust me. Understand that I'm right. And remember that everything belongs to me. The vineyard belongs to God. The vineyard workers belong to God. The wages and the rewards belong to Him too. He created it all. He made it all. And we should not complain about what God gives us or does not give us at the end of the day. And we should not compare ourselves to others and what God has given them. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine. My father is the husbandman or the farmer. And ye are the branches. That's all that you are. So do not argue against God who has every right to do what he wants to do. In 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the phrase, ye are not your own. Your body doesn't belong to you. Your life does not belong to you. It belongs to God and we can trust him. Why does God allow trials? Sometimes it is for sin in our lives. Sometimes bad things happen because we continue past all warnings into sin and God allows sorrow to come to correct us that we would turn. But the book of Job teaches us that suffering is not always for our own sin that we have committed. Sometimes God has a hidden eternal purpose that he wants to work out and we can trust him. Romans 8.28 tells us, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe what God has said? Then we must believe that all things are ultimately working together for good, that God has a purpose within it. And there's so many stories that we've heard, like that of, of Ron Hamilton, who had cancer in his eye and it had to be removed. And after his eye was removed, he had to wear a patch across his eye and it bothered him. But ultimately, he started a ministry called Patch the Pirate. And the kids loved to see him wear a little patch like a pirate. And God worked all of this good stuff in his life and rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistakes and fruit was born out of it. But I wonder how many good things God has accomplished according to His purpose through our suffering that we will never know until we get to heaven. In other words, do we trust God if we see it come back visibly and quickly and a bunch of fruit in front of our eyes? Or do we trust Him if we never see what good has been done through our suffering? Job did not know what was happening. And he also did not know that one day the book of Job would be penned under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And four or six thousand years later, we're sitting here on the other side of the world this morning, holding in the precious word of God, the story of his trials for the purpose that saints throughout every age could be encouraged and take heart in the sufferings of Job. He did not know God was accomplishing that purpose, but God was. God was. Whatever God has brought into your life or allowed into your life that is hard for you to come to terms with, that has been hurtful to you, seek to use that for the glory of God. Minister to others. Use your hurt to remember that other people are hurting and you can minister to them through that. Some people grow up with a very rough background as a child. Some people have to live in a life of sin before they come to Christ. And though we would say ultimately if we could have our own choice and say what's the best, it would be to get saved at a young age. It would be not to go through those things. Yet God surely wants the person who did go through all that to turn and help others and speak to others who are going through similar situations and use their testimony to say God can save you out of a life of sin. Whatever it is we wish could be different. I'm saying maybe God allowed it for a purpose so that we can minister to others. And I'll, I'll 
personally speak vulnerably from my heart the last two years as Melissa and I have walked through miscarriage after miscarriage, wishing that God would give us another child, not knowing if he would. I believe it. I've always believed it. But yet to be in my thoughts and come to terms with someday in heaven and in the millennial kingdom, I will be able to walk with my children that I wish I could have met here, but they will populate the kingdom of God for all of eternity. I know that's true because the word of God says it. And I know that whatever reason God's allowed pain to come into your life, surely you can use that to have empathy for others who you would look at their situation and never think to yourself, they're hurting. But because God's let you walk through something similar, you can look at them and see things you couldn't see before. And I'm saying whatever it is that God allows to come into your life that causes some harm, look beyond yourself and look to others who may be hurting and say, God, may I help them? May you give me empathy? May you give me the heart of Jesus Christ? Whatever the trial is, the call from the word of God is don't be bitter. Trust God. Have faith in that. Trials strengthen us just like a muscle that's flabby and weak can be strengthened when it lifts the weight and it tears a little bit and the damage is done and then it grows stronger than it was before. So too, God wants to, to, to use the trying of our faith to make us stronger in our life. My first job I ever had, I started when I was 17 years old working for the post office in the month of July when it was 107 degrees with no air conditioning, working 12-hour days, and I was stressed out and I was losing weight and I wanted to quit so bad, but my dad kept encouraging me, just don't quit that job. You'll be glad later if you didn't quit. Keep going, keep going. And what I learned was a lot of things, a work ethic. I learned I could do things that I hadn't done before. And what I'm saying is that a life that is blessed and happy is never going to be a life that has no obstacles, but it's a life that goes up against those challenges and goes forward and overcomes them. And then we grow. Then we learn. Then we know we're able to do things that we couldn't do before. And though there's some profit to suffering physically through exercise or learning a new discipline, there is much more a greater reward for Christians. As Peter said, if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. We know that it's bringing about an eternal fruit, an eternal harvest that though we can't see and understand, we know if God has allowed it, God has a reason. We know that God is good. We know that God never sins. So then the ultimate goal is to trust God. God himself showed up in the whirlwind and spake to Job before the book was ended, before God reversed all of his trials and blessed him with double of what he had before. God showed up and he said, Job, and what he asked Job was right along the lines of what Elihu said right before God came. He said, Job, I've got some questions for you. Where were you when I created the world and hung it out in space in the middle of nothing? Where were you when I stretched out the skies? Tell me, Job, can you create oceans like I did? Can you put the stars in the sky? Can you make the snow? Have you created the animals in this beautiful, perfect ecosystem that balances itself out and works to where this world is a beautiful place? And you know what happened? It's comical. Job spent chapter after chapter after chapter saying, I want to plead my case before God. I want to ask God all these questions. I want to tell God why I'm right. I want to tell God and ask God and tell God and ask God. And then when God sh finally showed up and started asking the questions, 
Job realized he didn't have a word to say. And for three or four straight chapters, God asked the questions, but Job sits there with his mouth shut, realizing he was wrong to ever question God. What God was wanting Job to know was if you are not of my might, of my power, if you cannot create what I have created, then don't question me. Trust me. Trust me. Have faith in God. Romans 8.32 tells us we never have to question the character of God. It It tells us that if God did not spare Jesus Christ, but freely gave Him to die a humiliating death in order that we might be saved, How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? In other words, if you can look at the cross and say the heart of God was so good, He did not withhold Jesus Christ from being humiliated and beaten to death for my sins, then why would I ever look to heaven and say, God, I really don't know if you can provide for my bills that I need paid. I really don't know if you're actually good because this happened to me and I don't know why. No, Romans tells us, look at the cross. And never question one time the heart and character of God. Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. And I know it goes right with verse 6 where it talks about acknowledging Him in all of, all of His ways and everything we do. And He'll direct our paths. But look what it says. Lean not to your own understanding. If our own understanding and our comprehension of life and its circumstances is necessary in order for us to praise God, then our own understanding has become our idol and we make ourselves God and not God Himself. So this morning I could ask the question, there would be an answer, I suppose, from every person, and it would be different, and we may have no idea what yours would be. But the question I'd like to ask you is, what about your life do you wish was different? It may be one main thing. It may be many things. But then the question, do you trust God? Do you trust that God sees your need? He knows your need. He knows whether He'll give it to you or not. And that we can trust His character. Let your trials bring you closer to God and listen for His voice. Job said at one point, and by the way, don't think I'm being harsh on Job this morning, because if I went through what he did and God recorded all of my thoughts and words, I'm sure I would have come up well short. How could we question a man who went through such unspeakable tragedy, yet God did not harshly punish him for his attitude, but he did correct his thinking somewhat, and it's in the Word of God, and it's there for us to learn. I don't remember what I was saying when I started that. That's what Job said at one point. He said, I go forward and I cannot perceive God. I go backwards. He is not there. To the left, to the right. He is silent unto me. I can't perceive God. I can't even hear His voice. God, where are you in all that I'm doing? Yet Job, through his faith, said, Though I cannot see or hear God, Job proclaimed, He knoweth the way that I take. In other words, if I can't see God, I know He still sees me. And when I am tried, I shall come forth as gold. Peter uses the same thing. The gold that is purged through the fire and the dross is burned off of it. How much more precious is the trying of your faith that if we will allow God to put us through the fire and trust that the fire is burning off the things He doesn't want to be there that will come forth like gold on the other side if we just keep trusting Him and having faith and praising Him. I move to close here. It's certainly true that trials can shake us up. 
And in 2020, with the the global pandemic, sometimes we wanted to be angry and sometimes we wanted to make fun of people who were afraid. But yet there's a lot to be afraid of, especially when you don't know God. And to turn on the news and see the streets empty and to see riots and to see whatever Afghanistan and all of these horrible things that played out right in front of our screen. It was easy for us to be shaken. It was easy for us to be angry. But Christian, remind yourself, all of these things we know are to come. And what is it that gives us hope? The New City Catechism records the question, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer being that we belong That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. What is your hope in the middle of the pandemic? That we are not our own, but belong both body and soul in life and death to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What is the hope for the day you die? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Not to my circumstances, not to my own understanding, but that God is good. Christ is our only hope in a broken world. What is hope in sorrow? What is hope in life? What is meaning of any of it if not for Christ? In Shakespeare's story about Macbeth, at one point, a character who is weary of life and the emptiness and sorrow of it expresses this notion that life is meaningless and nothing to hope in at all. And the character rages and says... Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty place from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools. The way to dusty death, out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. And of life itself, he says, it is a tale told by an idiot, sound, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. What then is the meaning of life other than that, if it is not for Christ? If we are simply animals who have evolved a little bit more than the other animals, what is the reason to live a life of morality? What is the reason to look for hope and suffering? There is none. So then, though you may be angry about the person around you who believes differently politically, remember that if they don't know God, they have no hope. And we are called to give them the truth in love, as Christ has done for us. I have a couple more verses and one more quote that I'm going to leave out this morning. And we'll, we'll close here. One day, a Christian mother who had lost one of her children, a little boy, was in deep grief. And she said to her daughter, I'm so sorry that we lost your brother. And the little girl said, But is someone actually lost if we know where they are? Now the reasons, in other words, we didn't lose him. We know he's with Jesus. Amen. Whatever sorrow there is in life, ultimately we pass out of it and we go to be with God. So then keep your eyes on him. Remember the eternal purpose in our suffering. And remember, like Job had to learn, my character, my righteousness, my understanding is not what is most important. Rather, the goodness of God is. And through my trials... May I try to point people to Him. Let's bow our head for a moment of prayer. If Melissa would come and play for just a moment, we'll just have a brief time of prayer while the music plays, and then we'll be dismissed. Whatever God's spoken to your heart about today, whatever He's brought to your mind, 
pray for it. Let's pray for each other. Let's pray for those who aren't here today. Let's pray for God's work to be done.